Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 33, What About Second Revolution? In the last episode, we explored the rising radicalism of Paris, the dramatic actions of the interior minister Roland, and the subsequent dismissal of the Girondin ministry. We also witnessed the controversial demonstration on the 20th of June, when Parisians stormed into the assembly and then the palace as they protested the actions of the king. In this episode, we're going to explore the aftermath of this unexpected event, the deteriorating military situation and the assembly's emergency decrees to prepare the nation for foreign invasion. We're also going to examine the introduction of new agitators in Paris, as well as the evolution of the city's radical elements as they begin to openly call for a second revolution. Now before we get into it, some grey history news. Following some feedback and ideas from listeners, I'm going to introduce electronic pigeons, more commonly known as emails. The grey history newsletter will be published whenever a new episode is released, and it will include all the various content on the social media pages in one place. It's also going to give me the opportunity to include new content, such as additional quotes, images, articles and perspectives, as well as links to all the bonus content for the Patreon supporters of the show. Now, this newsletter will evolve over time based on your feedback, but I see it as a great way to help put names to faces, as well as a way I can share interesting quotes and facts that didn't make it into the main show and don't constitute an episode extra in their own right. To give you a sense of what I'm thinking, this episode there will be a key protagonist section where I provide a portrait of some of the key revolutionaries, a brief bio about their faction and what history remembers them for, and then the key thing that they did this episode. Another section will be a from the notepad sort of section and will include a quote that is interesting but I couldn't find a way to fit into the main show. So, if you'd like to receive these electronic pigeons, just go to greyhistory.com and fill out the sign-up form, and there's also a link in the show notes. As I said, my plan is for these emails to accompany the release of new episodes, so please don't expect anything immediate, but hopefully they'll provide a way of making the French Revolution more engaging and more approachable. To all the Patreon supporters of the show, you don't have to do anything, I'm taking the liberty of signing you up as I figure you want all the extra content you can get your hands on. Secondly, a big thank you to everyone who has been doing their bit to spread the word about Grey History. Since we last spoke, Grey History has officially passed the 100,000 download mark, and it wouldn't be possible without your advocacy. To those people who have written reviews, promoted the show on social media, indoctrinated their friends and family, Thank you for your help. A reminder that if you have friends, family, colleagues or acquaintances who like history or podcasts, please do let them know about Grey History. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, 
written reviews are also tremendously helpful. To those people who have left some amazing reviews in the last few weeks, I've seen them, they've made me smile, and thank you so much for taking the time. Finally, a humongous, tremendous, enormous thank you to all the Patreon supporters of the show, including those who have signed up to sponsor the show since the last episode. These include the new noble citizens, Bojan, Hans, Peter, Jack, Gruck, Luke, Andre, and Stephen. The new true revolutionaries, Daniel, Mark, and Cern. The new patron and philosoph, Xavier. The new national champions, Brian, Tim, and Jason. And the new champion of the people, Alang. Joining the extra generous champions, George, Cynthia, and Jeffrey. Grey history would not be possible without the support of Patreons. And so I can't stress this enough. Thank you so much for your support. I also can't stress enough my apologies if I didn't nail the pronunciation of your name. My French is not the only language that I need to improve on. Now, before I forget, because I did forget last time and then proceeded to kick myself for a good week, the poll on the topic of the next bonus episode is going to close on the 8th of July. If you haven't already voted on Patreon, please do so, and you can vote for as many topics as you like. Currently leading the race is an exploration of the leading scientists during the revolution and how the revolution impacted them and their work, but there's a range of topics that are battling it out for top spot. Those topics with sizable support include a recount of the Corsican Revolution and how the island came to be under French dominion. Another is an examination of the annexation of Avignon and its impacts on international relations. And finally, a third topic that's in the mix is how the revolution was received by diplomats in Paris, as well as by activists abroad. These are just some of the topics being voted on, so please vote for as many as you like and vote by July the 8th. While you're there, you can check out the video update for the show, where I dive into some of my tentative plans for the podcast over the next 12 months, as well as go behind the scenes for this episode. Also, there will be two episode extras for this episode, so check them out as well. As a reminder, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you would like to listen to more Grey History, including a range of bonus content, you can become a Patreon for as little as $1 per future episode when they're released. For the price of a fraction of a cup of coffee, that will gain you access to all the bonus content, as well as the warm, fuzzy feelings you get when you help support Grey History transition to more regular production. Speaking of more regular production, you've all waited long enough for episode 33, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 33, What About Second Revolution? On the 6th of January, 2021, an American mob stormed the United States Capitol. 
seeking to prevent the certification of the 2020 presidential election, the mob momentarily succeeded, with the work of both the US House and Senate being disrupted for several hours. Ultimately, however, the Capitol grounds were secured and the peaceful transfer of power occurred. Now, there's a range of things that could and should be discussed in relation to the very troubling events of January 6. But this is not a political podcast, because if it was a politics podcast, I would have already talked about, in some detail, as to why Stannis Baratheon is Robert's true heir and the throne is his by rights. No, I don't want to talk about politics, at least not today, but what I do want to talk about is instead public opinion, particularly how divided public opinion was almost immediately after the events of the 6th. On the 17th of January, less than two weeks after the event, NBC News released a poll which showed how various groups of voters viewed the events of the 6th. Democrats, unsurprisingly, overwhelmingly held Donald Trump responsible, with 91% of Democratic-leaning respondents saying the president was either solely or mainly responsible for the riot. Furthermore, roughly 50% of Democratic-leaning respondents also laid sole or significant responsibility at the feet of conservative news media, Republican members of Congress, and QAnon. However, amongst Republican-leaning respondents, the results were starkly different. Just 11% of Republican respondents held Donald Trump solely or mainly responsible for the commotion at the Capitol. Instead, just under 50% of these respondents laid the blame on social media companies and Antifa. With such discrepancy in views between Democratic and Republican-leaning respondents, I do find myself wondering if modern-day media outlets are just an adult version of choose-your-own-adventure picture books. However, before I digress further, what I'm getting to is this. If such an event, such as the 6th, can be so divisive and so disputed in our own times, then imagine a similar event unfolding in the 18th century, in a time where there was no video, no photographs, no recordings, no radio, no live coverage, and then add into that situation a scenario where the nation experiencing this significant unrest was already at war. Furthermore, the nation was losing that war and inflation and food shortages were further compounding the hardships of the people. For good measure, add into that mix an environment of conspiracy and fear, which permeated the political discourse to such an extent that it makes QAnon look like a drop in the ocean. Do that, and you get a sense of the events of the 20th of June, 1792, when a French mob broke into the Legislative Assembly and then the palace seeking to impose its will on the government of the nation. Like the events in our own times, the events on the 20th of June 1792 exposed the deep divisions of the French kingdom. The fact that a mob had occupied both the legislative assembly and then the palace was to some the very definition of outrageous. The king had been threatened by a heavily armed and menacing rabble. The assembly had been desecrated by a gang of scoundrels, brutes and good-for-nothing ruffians. 
the will of the people and the will of God had been violated by degenerate Parisians, proving the revolutionary city to be nothing more than a wretched hive of scum and villainy. For royalists, the events of the 20th were a stain on the nation's history. From the ultra-royalist emigres through to the moderate fillons, monarchists everywhere were incensed. The anger amongst some corners of France was palpable. Petitions called for the arrest and trial of leading agitators, as well as the closure of the clubs and the societies which had endangered the king, the assembly and the constitution. Joining the chorus was the voice of Lafayette, the most respected military commander and Fillon leader in the country. Yet, like the events of January 6th this year, this outrage was far from universal. While some Frenchmen rallied behind Louis, others rallied behind the people who had so unceremoniously stripped away the remaining grandeur of the monarchy. Petitions flowed into the assembly praising the actions of a righteous and aggrieved people. Influential Parisians claimed it to be nothing more than a legal demonstration. The popular press, the revolutionary societies, and the more radical Parisian sections argued in unison that the events of the 20th were not the definition of lawlessness nor anarchy, as the royalists claimed, but instead were the very definition of a legitimate expression of the people's will. Depending on one's perspective, the 20th of June could be described as a myriad of things. But, with the benefit of hindsight, the 20th of June can also be depicted as one thing. It can be depicted as a dress rehearsal for what was about to come. While contemporaries debated how to interpret the events of the 20th, historians have a much clearer understanding of its importance. The controversial demonstration revealed for all to see the fragility and indeed helplessness of not only the monarchy, but the legislative assembly. Both the nation's executive, the king, and the nation's legislature, the assembly, were impotent in the face of organised actions from the radical sections and clubs of Paris. In fact, the institutions of the Constitution were so inept at defending the Constitution that the events made it plain for all to see that the current system was untenable, unsustainable, and terminal. In this environment, the deep and hostile divisions which already gripped the assembly between the Fillons and the Girondins and the Montagnards were merely reinforced. So too was the division which separated these factions from the court. Historian Heinrich von Siebel captures the situation well. After the 20th of June, all parties remained in arms. They had gone too far to believe in any peaceful measures on the part of their opponents. They had been so near bloodshed that it was no longer possible that the shedding of blood could be avoided. And, until the final catastrophe, France showed no signs of life than preparations for the decisive blow. Historian Heinrich von Siebel claims that the competing factions of the revolution remained in arms. 
that the nation was too far down the road of disorder to believe in the efficacy of peaceful measures. Historian George Lefebvre agrees, stating that in the aftermath of the 20th, the Girondins resumed their assault on the government. The Girondins were, after all, still outraged by the dismissal of the Interior Minister Roland and other Girondin ministers. And the conditions which had helped to ignite the 20th of June remained firmly in place. In fact, those conditions were getting worse. By late June, the French armies were again in retreat after a brief incursion into the Austrian Netherlands. In the wake of recent setbacks, Marshal Luckner had warned the assembly that the enemy could arrive at Paris in as little as six weeks. With Prussian armies now amassing to assist their Austrian allies, the military situation was deteriorating with speed. Furthermore, France's readiness to withstand this coming invasion was increasingly in doubt. We've already discussed, in great length, the difficulties caused by things like inflation, as well as food shortages and commodity shortages as well. But the unrest relating to the Assembly's controversial policies, notably its religious policies, was now starting to boil over. As the invasion loomed, reactionary nobles and non-juring priests started to channel local resentment and outrage into small but worrisome insurrections against the central authorities. From Paris, it was hard to distinguish between rumour and fact, and fears of civil war and counter-revolutionary insurgencies became more prevalent by the day. It was in this environment that the factions of the revolution engaged in their struggle as the dust settled on the events of the 20th. With Lafayette having failed to convince the Assembly to take action against the instigators of the demonstration, the initiative briefly passed back to the Girondins. In the halls of the Assembly, Brousseau, Vernieu and other Girondins repeated their accusations that the King, the Court and the newly installed Fillon Ministry were conducting treasonous activities. These accusations were echoed in the clubs, the sections and the press and the temperature in Paris rose steadily. And just as a reminder, this was after the Interior Minister Roland managed to get himself fired because he voiced his belief that the nation was already on the precipice of uncontrollable civil unrest. As the Girondins resumed their attack on the court, Brousseau in particular savaged the monarchy in a speech to the Assembly on the 9th of July. The de facto leader of the Girondins implored the Assembly to declare a state of emergency and accused the court of conspiring with the enemies of the nation. Our peril exceeds all that past ages have witnessed. The country is in danger, not because we are in want of troops, not because those troops want courage or that our frontiers are badly fortified and our resources scanty? No, it is in danger because its force is paralysed. And who has paralysed it? A man. One man. The man whom the Constitution has made its chief, and whom perfidious advisers 
have made its foe. You are told to fear the kings of Hungary and Prussia. I say the chief force of these kings is at the court, and it is there that we must first conquer them. They tell you to strike the dissentient priests throughout the kingdom. I tell you to strike at the Tillery, that is, to fell all the priests with a single blow. You are told to prosecute all factions and intriguing conspirators. They will all disappear if you once knock loud enough at the door of the cabinet of the Tullery. For that cabinet is the point to which all these threads tend, where every scheme is plotted, and whence every impulse proceeds. The nation is the plaything of this cabinet. This is the secret of our position. This is the source of the evil, and here the remedy must be applied. If that wasn't a complete and utter denunciation of the actions of King Louis XVI and his court, then I don't know what is. Brousseau literally states that the nation is paralysed because of the actions of the king he declares that the chief force of the nation's enemies is stationed at the court. He proclaims that the source of the evil which infects the nation is just metres away at the Tullery Palace. This theme was echoed by other Girondins as well. We'll explore Vernieu's speech on the 3rd of July in one of the episode extras, but the capable orator accused Louis of being the main impediment to the nation's defence. In short, leading deputies of the assembly were openly denouncing the king of enabling, if not instigating, crimes against the nation. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Interestingly, it was in this increasingly dysfunctional and desperate environment that the Assembly passed a number of measures which dramatically transformed the situation within the country. Starting on the 2nd of July, the Assembly passed a measure relating to the Federes. Now, you may remember that the King and the Assembly had been at loggerheads over the Federes. Back on the 8th of June, the Assembly adopted the then-War Minister Savan's proposal of establishing a camp of some 20,000 volunteers in Paris. It was envisioned that this encampment could protect the nation against its foreign foes and conveniently against domestic ones as well. Pretty much everyone but the Girondins rejected this idea, including Lafayette, de Maurier, Robespierre, the King, and, well anyone that didn't associate with Brousseau. Back in June, the Girondins dominated both the Assembly and the Ministry, and so leading figures among the Fillons, the Montagnards and the Court had no intention of handing Brousseau and his allies a new miniature army in the form of these federal volunteers. 
Louis vetoed the measure, and although they tried, the crowd of the 20th of June failed to compel him to reverse his opposition. Well, that opposition had continued, but on the 2nd of July, the Assembly more or less decided to ignore it. Under the guise of celebrating the upcoming anniversary of the fall of the Bastille, the Assembly decreed that the volunteers should come to Paris to participate in the upcoming celebrations. Further enticing the troops, the Assembly decreed that they would be compensated for the distance they travelled, and accommodation would be arranged for all who marched in defence of the nation. Now, some communes had already begun to send volunteers to the capital, despite the king's veto. And so this really formalised and legitimised a process that had already partially commenced. Yet the fact that some volunteers had already begun to march to the capital does not take away from the fact that the assembly was essentially reiterating its controversial decree of June, despite the king's long-known hostility. Building on that theme, this decree, which encouraged the federés to come to Paris, was just the opening act of an assembly behaving in an increasingly independent manner. Reflecting the fact that foreign armies were at the metaphorical gates, and internal enemies seemed to be unlocking those gates, on the 5th and then on the 11th of July, the Assembly passed a series of decrees which, when taken together, amount to the general mobilisation of the nation. Famously, on the 11th of July, the Assembly declared the nation to be in danger, echoing Brousseau's speech two days prior. Having declared the homeland to be in peril, the mobilisation effort called for all able-bodied men who had already served in the National Guard to be placed in active service. Furthermore, citizens were obliged to report what arms and ammunition they possessed. Pikes were distributed to those who were unable to procure guns, and battalions of volunteers were to be enrolled with speed. The Assembly's vote on the 11th to formally declare the country to be in danger was almost unanimous in nature. The body called for the united and total support of the nation, and the nation rose to the occasion. Historian Francois-Alphonse Ollard describes the decree as modifying the entire attitude of the nation, while historian Francois Mignet asserts that these measures of defence raised the revolutionary enthusiasm to the highest pitch. Historian Peter McPhee supports these assertions with his recent work, noting that in the east of France, aka in the area most prone to foreign invasion, volunteers not only answered this call to arms, but in fact amassed in numbers far greater than what was expected. Merthyr was to provide 2,500 men, but instead enrolled 4,000. The town of Saint-Dié, which had only a population of about 5,000, was asked for 80 volunteers and instead provided more than double that number. As news spread that the nation was on the precipice of destruction, these patriotic scenes were repeated across the country. One contemporary wrote, It's like a frenzy. The patriotic zeal is overwhelming, the likes of which have never been seen since the world began. 
In short, the Assembly declared the nation to be in danger, and the nation prepared to fight. The emergency decrees of July had several important ramifications, and we're going to dive into four of them. Firstly, as already discussed, these measures effectively placed the nation on a relatively united and enthusiastic war footing. Sure, the revolutionary protagonists in Paris were as divided as ever, but outside the halls of power, outside of Paris, the nation was readying itself for a great struggle with European despotism. As invasion loomed, enthusiasm for the revolution skyrocketed, and a national spirit stirred in the face of foreign occupation. Before the war, Robespierre had warned the French that no one likes armed missionaries, and the impending Allied invasion provided more evidence for this now famous observation. To be sure, civil unrest remained in pockets of France. Support for counter-revolutionary insurgencies did not evaporate overnight. But, in general, the declaration that the nation was in danger rallied broad public support to the cause of defending the nation. Secondly, the actions of the Assembly further eroded the power and prestige of the monarchy. Numerous historians assert that these proclamations created, or at least reinforced, the perception that the king had failed in his duties as the defender of the people. After all, if the king had been doing a decent job at defending the people, why was the nation now on the precipice of destruction? Why was the nation now in danger? Furthermore, this perception reinforced the already existing image propagated by the radical and democratic press that the king and his court were in fact treasonous. It also lent credibility to the claims of revolutionaries who decried sabotage from within the government. Now, connecting the royal family to the nation's enemies had never been particularly difficult. All you had to do was draw a family tree. The king's brothers were leading the small force of French emigres, and the queen's nephew sat on the Austrian throne and headed the Holy Roman Empire. However, The growing list of military setbacks now reinforced this link between the French court and the kingdom's enemies, and the July decrees merely emphasised this connection further. Through this public proclamation of the nation's vulnerability, the Assembly prompted uncomfortable questions relating to the true loyalties of the king, his ministers and his court. As the war situation continued to deteriorate, so too did the remaining legitimacy of Louis XVI. The third reason why the Assembly's dramatic measures were important is not so much the measures themselves, but the manner in which the Assembly undertook them. Backing up a bit, the Legislative Assembly had a long history of passing laws the King disliked. The two branches of government were almost immediately in deadlock over the issues of priests and emigres, back in late 1791. As previously discussed, there was no constitutional way to resolve the deadlock that a veto created. The king couldn't dismiss the assembly, and the assembly couldn't override the veto. However, in the aftermath of the 20th of June, this situation started to change. 
From a constitutional perspective, the power of the veto was as powerful as ever. The king was still required to give his sanction to new laws. However, in reality, things were changing. With the deteriorating situation, particularly in Paris, King Louis felt compelled to cooperate with some of the Assembly's decisions. Furthermore, the Assembly started to act in a manner which would have made it pretty hard, if not impossible, to not go along with those decisions. For example, despite the King's month-long opposition to the Federes, the Assembly more or less rebranded its decree and then republished it. Once published, would Louis' veto really have kept the most committed revolutionaries from gathering in Paris? Unlikely. The most committed revolutionaries from across France took their orders from the Assembly, not the monarch, and many had already left for Paris without this new decree. In such a scenario, obstruction might have been more problematic for the king rather than simple acceptance. Just days later, in their defensive measures published on the 5th and then the 11th of July, the deputies were again dictating the nation's agenda without deference to the monarch. Could Louis really veto these decrees, considering that his true loyalties were already doubted, and that he and his family were clearly vulnerable to the actions of a Parisian mob? Again, unlikely. What we're witnessing here is a vulnerable king increasingly acting without his own independent agency. But more importantly, we're also witnessing a confident assembly increasingly comfortable acting with its own independent agency. Sure, it's responding to an existential crisis. Sure, it had no time to waste. Sure, it debatably had no choice but to take command as the hordes of despotism and tyranny threatened to overrun the kingdom. But it is also the case that the Assembly, through its increasingly unilateral actions, was behaving, thinking, governing, in a manner not too dissimilar to a Republican legislature. I mean, just take a moment to list its actions. The deputies were mobilising the nation, decreeing the homeland to be in danger, drafting volunteers, distributing weapons, ordering troop movements. Furthermore, they weren't even attempting to govern alongside the king or his ministers. In fact, they were in many ways governing against the executive branch of government. For example, in mid-July, the Assembly passed a decree reinstating the Parisian mayor, Jérôme Pétion, to his post. The mayor had been suspended by the directory of the department after his failure to prevent the demonstration on the 20th of June. That suspension had been endorsed by the king, an appropriate punishment for the man whose inaction had endangered the lives of the royal family. Yet, just days after his suspension, the assembly decreed his reinstatement, prompting the department officials to resign in protest and forcing the king into a humiliating backdown when he accepted the decision. That acceptance probably had something to do with the large number of Parisians shouting Pétion or death in the days prior. In short, the Assembly was governing almost unilaterally in a time of crisis. So much so that historian David Andres describes its actions 
as de facto abandonment of constitutionality. These actions, this governing without any semblance of involvement from the king and his ministry, clearly demonstrated that one didn't need the defender of the people to defend the people. The barriers to a republic were weakening by the day. As historian Francois Alphonse Ollard notes, This anti-republican assembly disregarded the royal power, and on occasion governed by itself, as though a republic already existed. Finally, there is one last ramification of these decrees which is worth noting, and that's an interesting observation from historian Simon Sharma. Sharma asserts that by declaring the nation to be in danger, the Legislative Assembly essentially unsheathed a double-edged sword. On one side, it empowered the Assembly to rally the nation. The decrees provided not only the defensive measures, but also the defensive mindset required to enact a stern resistance to the coming invasion. However, Sharma proposes, I think quite reasonably, that the decrees also empowered the Assembly's enemies, not just the Assembly itself. And when I say the Assembly's enemies, I do not mean the Prussians, or the Austrians, or the emigres, or the non-juring priests, or even the court. I am instead talking about the threat to the Assembly from its left. The leaders of Paris's radical sections and revolutionary societies the sans-culottes and those who led them, and who organised the demonstration of the 20th of June. Those individuals who had, without even trying, come so close to toppling the constitution and its defenders. Sharma asserts that by declaring the nation to be in danger, that by warning of impending catastrophe, the assembly provided legitimacy for another insurrection. After all, it had been claimed that foreign hordes would devastate the fatherland, that fire and murder would be unleashed until the nation was in chains. If the nation was truly on the precipice of such destruction, and this defeat was enabled by hidden conspirators in the court, then surely extrajudicial action became justified. Surely insurrection became justified. An insurrection to remove these traitors from the government, to empower the nation's defence, to enable the kingdom to avoid this terrible catastrophe. From the perspective of revolutionary agitators, surely this was a situation where the ends justified the means. As a result, historian Simon Sharma asserts that the emergency decrees empowered the assembly against one enemy while weakening it against another. Although fortifying the constitution of 1791 against foes outside the capital, the decrees left it vulnerable to those within the city, which would see its demise. Radical agitators now had the justification they needed for radical action. I'm sure the likelihood of further insurrection was not lost on the British embassy. A dispatch to London in early July left nothing to be interpreted. We are on the eve 
of a great crisis. France was indeed on the eve of a great crisis. But for a brief moment, the nation was provided an opportunity to distract itself from the dangers it faced. That distraction came in the form of the 14th of July, 1792, the third anniversary of the fall of the Bastille. Held just three days after the nation was declared to be in danger, this Fête de la Fédération was nothing like the first optimistic celebration of 1790. The atmosphere of hope and unity had been muted, replaced by darkness and austerity. With the arrival of federés from across the country, the presence of these federal volunteers converted the occasion from a festival to something which resembled an armed military encampment. Thus, while the Fête de la Fédération may have provided an opportunity for the nation to symbolically come together in the face of an existential threat, it was also itself a symbol of just how traumatic the last two years had been. Now, we don't have time to dive into the details of the Fête de la Fédération of 1792, so I'm going to do that in an episode extra for those that are interested. Yet, while we're not going to focus on the festival itself, we do need to focus on its participants. The headline act of the anniversary was the participation of the federés from across the country. These volunteers would soon be fighting on the front lines, and their presence showed a united front against the hordes of despotism which menaced the French people. However, as previously discussed, the presence of these federés was quite controversial. First proposed by Girondins back in early June, the king had vetoed the proposal, and both Fillons and Montagnards were hostile to the measures as well. It was only on the 2nd of July that the Assembly again published a decree encouraging the federés to come to Paris. And importantly, once the Fête de la Fédération had ended, the federés were meant to move on to Soissons, a small town about 60 miles or 100 kilometres northeast of Paris. This, but dad, it's just for a couple of days, excuse, helped to gloss over the fact that the king remained opposed to the presence of the federés, even if he did reluctantly sanction the assembly's repackaged decree. Yet, in the aftermath of the celebrations, a significant number of federés refused to go to Soissons. And it's here that the trouble began. Before we get into just what these newly amassed federés got up to, it's worth noting the mindset and political disposition of these eager volunteers. The fact that the federés came to Paris despite the king's vocal opposition and the questionable legality of the situation demonstrates the true sympathies of these troops. The federés were committed revolutionaries. Many saw themselves as agents of the revolution, as protectors of the victories of 1789, as defenders of the new regime against the perils of despotism and tyranny. Despite this enthusiasm, 
and reflective of the revolutionaries they supported, the Federés were by no means united in their political beliefs. In order to protect the nation, some favoured direct action against Louis XVI, either by supporting the overthrow of the monarchy or merely his abdication in favour of the young and impressionable heir. Others were less keen to dispose of the king and instead focused their efforts on the broader court as well as the new ministry which they distrusted and despised. Yet, despite these differences in beliefs, the key points remain the same. The Federés had come to Paris against the king's will, and they had come to defend the revolution, a revolution which the Assembly had just decreed to be on the precipice of destruction. Having been told in no uncertain terms that the country faced the gravest of dangers, these volunteers had gathered in Paris to fight back. And since the press and the clubs and the sections and even some revolutionaries proclaimed the counter-revolution to be orchestrated from the Tuileries Palace, that is where the attention of these federés came to be. Instead of focusing on the dangers originating from the eastern frontier, from the gathering armies of Prussia and Austria, the federés became focused on their enemies within Paris. The enemies that were supposedly crippling the war effort, that were fueling national unrest, driving inflation, hoarding grain, protecting seditious priests and traitorous emigres. As the nation prepared for the horrors of foreign invasion, the federés became focused on those deemed to be assisting, if not orchestrating, that invasion. That is to say, they became focused on the king, the queen, the court, and the ministry. Far more radical than the deputies of the assembly, these devoted revolutionaries intended to do their duty. Before they marched to the front lines, they intended to eliminate this cancer from the heart of revolutionary France. Refusing to relocate to the town of Soissons, the agitation of the Federés was almost immediate. On the 17th of July, just three days after the Fête de la Fédération, and less than a week after the emergency proclamation, a deputation of Federés arrived at the Legislative Assembly. The deputation had three clear demands. Firstly, impeach Lafayette. Secondly, impeach the ministry. Finally, suspend the king. Speaking to the deputies, the deputation of volunteers proclaimed, We do not refuse to obey a king, but we perceive a great difference between a king and a court of conspirators, whose punishment and expulsion is demanded by the constitution itself, and by all the laws, human and divine. Fathers of the country suspend provisionally the executive power in the person of the king. The welfare of the state requires and demands this measure. The assembly, understandably, did none of these things. But this was just the first of many actions of the federates. Three days later, on the 20th of July, 
the Federais announced the creation of a new central committee. Determined to remain in Paris until the issues surrounding the monarchy had been resolved, this central committee proclaimed on the 20th an address to the French citizens of the 83 departments. This committee declared that the Federais intended to protect the capital against a treacherous court. It is in Paris that we must conquer or die, and we have sworn to remain here. This is our post. This is the place of our triumph. Or it shall be that of our tomb. Thus, by the 20th of July, the new volunteers which had amassed in Paris, some 3,000 strong, had made their intentions clear. They would not depart the capital. At least, not until it was purged of the counter-revolutionaries which were crippling the nation. With the king and his ministers suspected of treason, in reality, what the Federais were saying was that they intended to purge the highest posts of the government and the court. As a Federate deputation had told the Assembly, We want to triumph or die for liberty, but we do not wish to fight under courtesans and the accomplices of tyrants. We are told to fight Austria, but Austria is in our camps and in the King's Council and Austria is at the head of our armies. It is not enough that the French nation is debased to making war on traitors. She is still led and betrayed by them. Having denounced the treacherous government, and having declared their intentions to purge these traitors before marching to the front lines, It's here that we can now connect the presence of the Federais to the developments of recent episodes, specifically to the rise of the press, the clubs, and the sections of Paris. When the Federais began to arrive in Paris, these enthusiastic supporters of the revolution were welcomed by many members of the city's most extreme revolutionary clubs and societies. Before long, many volunteers were sleeping in the premises of the radical Cordelier Club or lodged in club members' homes. The increasingly radical Jacobin Club was no less welcoming, with club members soon establishing a strong camaraderie with volunteers as they arrived from all corners of France. What this meant was that, over the first few weeks of July, an alliance was formed between the most enthusiastic provincial volunteers and the most revolutionary Parisian agitators. The two groups found in each other like-minded individuals, comrades who were willing to do whatever it took to defend the nation from the atrocities of counter-revolution. As time passed, the friendship established between the city's clubs, the city's sections, and the newly arrived federés only deepened. Georges Danton, an influential leader of the Cordelier Club, was a vocal supporter of the Federés remaining in Paris after the Fête de la Fédération had ended. Joining Danton were members of the Jacobin Club, including Robespierre. In fact, the Jacobin Club was the meeting place of the newly established Central Committee of the Federés. That committee literally met in the Jacobins. That's how connected 
these revolutionary groups were. Like schoolchildren who find their best friend for life on their first day of a new school, the Federés were soon inseparable from the clubs, societies and sections, which had been causing the established authorities in Paris a tremendous amount of trouble over the last few years. Needless to say, this was a worrying development for many in the halls of power. Before continuing, I can't help but note the great irony of this development. Originally, back in June 1792, Robespierre and other Montagnard associates rejected the Girondin proposal to establish a camp of federal volunteers. You may remember that leaders of the radical clubs and sections feared that these troops would be loyal to the assembly and could potentially be used to suppress the troublesome sections, clubs and press. So it's not without significant irony that when the Federés finally arrived, these troops were far more radical than the assembly itself, and thus not inclined to blindly do its bidding. Now, perhaps this is not that surprising when you consider the fact that these men had just volunteered to fight against the formidable armies of Prussia and Austria on behalf of the revolution. Nevertheless, the point remains. Instead of submitting to the assembly, these new protagonists would instead form an alliance with the very groups which were challenging the assembly for power. With the Federés now joining the coalition of radical agitators in Paris, by late July, the city appeared to be on the verge of another insurrection. The radical press denounced Louis the False and demanded the assembly dethrone this two-faced coward, a man described as a domestic and constitutional enemy. Worryingly for the assembly, the revolutionary press was only growing louder in its calls for drastic action, including a fundamental rewriting of the constitution. For some time, the most zealous revolutionaries had taken the view that the constitution was a hindrance to the national defence, because the document preserved a treasonous king. That protection crippled the nation's ability to defend itself, rendering the assembly impotent and the people vulnerable. As the left-wing deputy Francois Chabot summarised the Jacobins on the 28th of June, In this national crisis, the National Assembly, garroted by the Constitution, cannot save you, because the King wants your loss. Throughout July, this idea that the Constitution needed to be significantly revised only gained traction. Interestingly, it started to gain traction not only because of the actions of the king, but also because of the inaction of the assembly. Why was this the case? Well, according to some in the press, as well as the most progressive and militant members of the clubs and the sections, the logic for the calls against the assembly worked something like this. The king was clearly betraying the nation and needed to be removed. If the assembly would not remove the king, then the deputies were accomplices in that treason. Thus, the assembly should be removed as well. 
Using this reasoning, calls started to increase for the people of Paris to not only take action against the monarchy, but also the Legislative Assembly. One publication from the 20th of July reads, Yes, our first representatives have poisoned the sap of the constitutional tree. It is time to deliver it from royalty, that impure and mortifying worm, which would presently dry it to the roots. Let us at last break the colossus whose weight would crush us sooner or later. It will destroy in its fall the noxious insects which it shelters, and society, delivered from all these plagues, will enjoy the peace and happiness that should be its share. Throughout July, the idea of purging the Legislative Assembly started to gain real credibility amongst the most radical cohorts of Paris. By the middle of the month, the influential Jacobin, Maximilien Robespierre, lent his support to the idea, an idea which was rapidly gaining in popularity amongst the Cordelier and Jacobin clubs. Endorsing the notion that the assembly had to be replaced for the good of the nation, Robespierre directly linked the actions of the court to the inaction of the assembly, an assembly which was conveniently dominated by his Girondin rivals and to a lesser extent the Fillons, which he also despised. Has the head of the executive power been faithful to the nation? Then he must be maintained. Has he betrayed it? Then he must be dismissed. The National Assembly is unwilling to pronounce this dismissal, and if the king is deemed to be guilty, then the Assembly itself is complicit in his offences. Having condemned the Assembly, as being complicit in the crimes of the court, a growing cohort of voices on the revolutionary left lobbied for the Assembly's dismemberment. By July, leading figures within the Jacobin Club were proposing the formation of a new constituent Assembly, one which would rewrite the Constitution, halt the crimes of the court, determine the fate of the monarch, and critically fight back against the revolution's enemies, both foreign and domestic. This proposal for a new constituent assembly, a convention, was more than just that, however. It was, in effect, a proposal for a second revolution. Furthermore, to some radical revolutionaries, this proposal was the perfect Trojan horse for a long-standing dream, the first French Republic. Although many had been reluctant to publicly back a republic since the traumatic experience of the tricolour terror a year prior, calls for a new constituent assembly were an opportunity to do just that. It was a way to lobby for a replacement to the monarchy without using the cursed R word. Now, to be clear, even amongst the Parisian left, it was far from universally agreed that this constituent assembly would be the midwife of a new republic. By the end of July, momentum for a republic was building, but the shift in favour of a republic was hardly instantaneous nor universal. 
We'll dive deeper into the positions of the leading factions and revolutionaries next episode. But I do want to make the point that while some saw this proposal for a constituent assembly as a means to install a republic, others were less sure, or at least took time in coming round to a pro-republic position. Nonetheless, what matters is as follows. By the end of July 1792, radical left-wing revolutionaries were not only calling for the king to be dethroned, but for the assembly to be dismissed as well. In order to defend the principles of 1789, the revolutionary left was seeking to overturn the constitution of 1791. The Legislative Assembly now found itself in a terrible position. Like the helpless citizens of the planet Alderaan, the deputies of the Assembly could do little as they watched not one, not two, but three monumental threats simultaneously emerge on the horizon. To their east, foreign armies prepared to cross the frontier. To their west, counter-revolutionary conspirators planned uprisings and insurgencies. Most worryingly, however, was the growing threat already within the capital itself, directly outside the halls of power. Revolutionary agitators had come so close to unintentionally toppling the government on the 20th of June, an event which was unplanned and unsupported by many leading figures on the revolutionary left. Fast forward a month, and the agitators of the 20th now had the explicit support of revolutionaries such as Robespierre and Danton, and plans were prepared to overthrow the increasingly terminal regime. With the Federés now mixing with the clubs, societies and sections of Paris, the revolutionary left had acquired thousands of enthusiastic volunteers in their efforts to save the revolution's gains by eliminating the revolution's enemies. With the radical left reaching consensus on the need for a second revolution, the existing regime was facing its greatest crisis to date. Recognising this threat, the Assembly saw little choice but to make concessions to the city's sections, presumably to buy time and avert the insurrection which increasingly looked imminent. Critically, on the 25th of July, the Assembly granted the sections permission to sit in permanent session. Then, on the 27th of July, the influence of the sections increased once more, with the formal establishment of a correspondence office in the Hotel de Ville. The formation of this correspondence office was critical because it created a shadow municipal government, housed just down the hall from the actual municipal government. The way this office worked was that the city's various sections would send representatives, and the representatives would coordinate, plan and action the city's defensive measures. Given the recent establishment of this office, as well as its clear mandate, many interpreted this correspondence office to supersede or outrank the actual municipal government. Furthermore, because this correspondence office was made up of representatives of the sections, it meant this committee had deep connections with the National Guard, the Federés, the clubs, the press, and the city's sans-culottes. 
Thus, the new committee wielded tremendous power within the city of Paris, far more power than the actual municipal authority. Now cloaked in the legitimacy of being housed in the Hotel de Ville, that is to say, in the town hall itself, the representatives of each section were able to coordinate their response to the nation's crisis through this centralised correspondence office. A response which would include the dethronement of the king and the establishment of a new constituent assembly. As July came to an end, the city's sections were becoming the masters of Paris. As a result, they were also becoming the masters of the nation. As an aside, it should be noted that as the power and authority of the radical sections rose, so too did the influence of Parisian sans-culottes. The radical sections of Paris had a long-established link with the city's artisans and workers, and the rising power of these sections, combined with the desperateness of the military situation, to provide an opportunity to secure long-desired political reforms. On the 25th of July, the section of the Louvre announced the necessity of bestowing the rights of active citizens to all citizens. That is to say, to remove the distinction between active and passive citizens. Days later, the Theta Francais section followed suit, establishing universal suffrage within the section. That decree was signed by the section's president, Georges Danton. Other sections began to follow suit, and along with cries for a new assembly and the king's removal, calls for universal suffrage became a common demand of the city's sections and their supporters. With the sections now in a sense legislating significant changes to the social and political fabric of the new regime, their actions essentially compelled the assembly to follow suit. Continuing to issue previously unthinkable decrees in the name of the national defence, on the 1st of August, the assembly authorised pikes to be distributed to all citizens, provided that they were not disreputable individuals. Having now armed passive citizens, the assembly issued another decree on the 3rd of August, stating that any man who fought for France would be granted the rights of active citizenship. This declaration was significant because a large number of passive citizens would naturally participate in the coming struggle. After all, the nation was in danger. Able-bodied men were required to push back the armies of Prussia and Austria. With the Assembly granting the right to vote to any who participated in the War of Liberty, for all intents and purposes, the distinction between active and passive citizens was rapidly becoming a thing of the past. The Assembly was paving the way for universal male suffrage. So, by the end of July 1792, the situation looked like this. Several thousand federés had established themselves in Paris. Committed enthusiasts of the revolution, these volunteers had formed close links with the city's radical clubs, societies and sections. These agitators had nearly toppled the regime back on the 20th of June, and they had done so unintentionally. A month later, they now intentionally planned the regime's demise, 
coordinating their efforts through the Correspondence Office of the Sections and the Central Committee of the Federace. To these revolutionaries, drastic times called for drastic measures, and the fact that the nation had been declared to be in danger proved the necessity of action, along with the treason of the court. In order to save the nation, members of the radical press, clubs, sections and federes increasingly supported the establishment of a new constituent assembly, the dethronement of the king and the adoption of universal male suffrage. In short, they were calling and preparing for a second revolution. With the capital falling under the control of the city's radical elements, Paris was on the verge of another insurrection. It was not a matter of if, but when. Thank you for listening to episode 33, What About Second Revolution? There are two episode extras for this episode. The first examines the importance of Vernieu's famous speech on the 3rd of July, in which he holds the king publicly accountable for the actions of France's enemies. The second is an exploration of the Fête de la Fédération of 1792, including its rather humorous tree of feudalism. In the next episode, we'll be discussing the controversial actions of the Duke of Brunswick, the political manoeuvrings of the revolutionary factions, and most importantly, the fall of the monarchy. Yes, that's right, we're finally here, I said it, the fall of the monarchy. A huge thank you to all the Patreon supporters of the show, as well as those people who have been spreading the word about grey history. To support the show, and to access a range of bonus content, including episode extras and standalone bonus episodes, please do consider sponsoring the show via Patreon. In fact, before you forget, just do it right now. There's a link in the show notes and on the website, and while you're there, you can vote for the topic of the next bonus episode. Patrons, please don't forget to vote for as many topics as you like. The poll will close on July 8. Finally, a reminder that you can sign up to the new Grey History newsletter by the link in the show notes or by visiting greyhistory.com. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.